You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. My parents are teachers, or were teachers. They're, they're retired now. They didn't actually become teachers till I was a little bit older. I, uh, I didn't grow up with teachers as parents, but my, uh, my dad became an elementary school teacher when I was in middle school, and then my mom went back to school at that point. She had been a stay-at-home mom, and she became a teacher about the time I was graduating from high school. So I didn't grow up in a family of teachers, but I grew up around teachers and certainly as an adult have spent a lot of time with teachers, my parents' friends and acquaintances being primarily, but also, you know, I've got a brother who's a teacher. I've got uh, a number of cousins that are teachers and in the education profession. I have two sister-in-laws that are teachers. I spend a lot of time around teachers, not just these people I'm related to, but their friends and their acquaintances and people around them. One of the common things that I hear from people in the teaching profession, particularly when you start to talk about things like holding teachers accountable, for lack of a better way to put it, or you know, how do we improve the quality of education? How do we improve the quality of, of teaching? When you hear people start to have a conversation about the things that we do to improve teacher performance, student performance, education, you know, measurements of that. What you hear a lot of, and I hear this from my friends and acquaintances who are teachers, is that you can't hold us accountable for what the kids are like. A lot of these kids come to school not prepared to learn, and we can teach them, but they, you know, go home to broken homes. They go home to homes where they're not, not only not interacted with and listened to, but sometimes not even fed, you know, not put to bed on time, uh, not gotten up in the morning and gotten to school. Uh, they come to school late. They come to school without clean clothes. They come to school not fed. These are all like burdens that keep them from learning. And, you know, you can't, as outsiders looking at this situation, really expect us teachers to be able to teach students who are, are not coming prepared to learn. And I think one of the things that I heard over and over again is that, you know, these are parents. This is the parent's fault, or this is the parent's issue. If you're going to try to have expectations of teachers, you're really doing something grossly unfair because we don't get to pick our students. We don't get to choose the ones that come to us. We have to spend the time with them. We want to spend the time with them and help them learn. But, you know, they're challenging. We don't get to pick them. We have to deal with them as they come. I know many, many, many teachers personally, as friends, as acquaintances, as relatives. I don't know any that is not a good person, that don't care deeply about their students, that don't work really hard, that don't want to do the best they can for, for kids. But when we get into this lament of, like, we don't get to pick the kids, we just got to deal with them, and they come unprepared, I'm like, that's the job. That's part of the job. That's teaching. You don't get to pick like the ideal kids to teach. You got to teach the kids that come to you. You don't get to sit back and say, 
I don't want this batch of kids. I want this other batch of kids. You, you, you don't get that. You got to teach them as they are. And if they come to school hungry, they come to school in you know dirty clothes, they come to school tired, there may be things that you can do to, to change that or improve that or make that better, but you don't get to say, okay, this is why I can't teach this kid. You still have to teach them. And you still have to do everything you can to impart something to them. And you still, really, society should expect you to be judged by how well you do that, how well you perform in that situation. That is, in a sense, the job. The job is not to teach ideal kids who come to school having been read to since they were in the womb, prepared to learn, always respectful, always sit upright, you know, always uh, you know, do the right thing, say please and thank you all the time, pay attention when you're talking, study, you know, stand in straight lines, don't fidget. No, these are not, that, that's not kids. That's not real. That's not life. If you are becoming a teacher, you're essentially signing up to a job that says, you have to teach difficult children. You have to teach them something. You have to you know, give them skills and tools and knowledge and understanding to improve their lives and be better people. You have to teach them. That's the job. That's the job. I think we can also talk about presidents, right? And we could go back and talk about you know, lots of different administrations. I'm going to talk about the Barack Obama administration because it's the one most recent for us in our minds. But you, you could certainly do this about George W. Bush. You could do this about Bill Clinton. You could do this about George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. These are the ones of my lifetime that I you know, remember to, to one degree or another. And, and I know this conversation has taken place in all of them. But I'm going to focus on Barack Obama because I think it's the most recent one in our minds. There's a sense that you know, Barack Obama did many great things, accomplished many things. If you look at his like presidential resume, uh, and it, when historians look back, they will say, you know, Barack Obama accomplished A, B, C, D, whatever that is. But there's a sense, and you heard it many times during his administration, and you particularly heard it many times towards the end of his administration. There's a sense that Barack Obama could have been so much more of a president, he could have accomplished so much more. He could have had a, a much deeper resume, or resume is the wrong word, uh, you know, track record, accolades, you know, long list of accomplishments, if he had just had better people to work with, if Congress had been friendlier, if the opposition hadn't been so strident and so strong, if the country hadn't been so racist and, and, and supportive of people who were motivated by racism. And we could go on down the litany of things, right? If the economy hadn't been so bad when he took office, if uh, you know Democrats have been able to hold on to uh, the House longer than what they did, if Ted Kennedy hadn't died when he did, you know, there's this long list of things that are like, you know, Barack Obama could have been something uh, more than what he was had had all these things gone a different way. Again, I'm not picking on Barack Obama here in a partisan way. I think every presidency had this. I remember back when uh, Bill Clinton, after 9-11, there was a, a report or a rumor, and I never heard him say this, but it, it, it seems to ring kind of true that there was a lament that 9-11 didn't happen while he was in office because 9-11, especially at the time, I don't know if history will be this kind to, to George W. Bush, but at the time there was a sense that, you know, these great conflicts create great leaders. In a sense, 
Bill Clinton was robbed of greatness because he didn't have a great tragedy that he could respond to magnanimously during his eight years. I don't know if he actually said something like that or if people said that in his stead or what have you, but I do remember that lament. But the idea is that things could have been different if you know, there hadn't been opposition, there hadn't been all these things that go wrong. And, and again, just like with the teachers, I'm going to say the same thing. Like, that's the job. You don't get to pick like a friendly press, right? <laughs> you, you know, if only the media hadn't been so strident, if only the media hadn't, you know, uh, given voice to your critics. Um, no, you, you, like, that's, that's part of the job. That's the job. You just get that handed to you. Like, if you want to be president, you're going to have to deal with a media that's not friendly. Oh, if only Congress had gone along with the policies, if they, if they hadn't been, you know, such strident in their opposition, if they hadn't been just all out to defeat you. Yeah. You know what? That's the job. That's the, like, that's the way it is. That's the way life is. That's the way the job is. That's what you signed up for. That's it. Like you, you can lament that if you want, but I mean, it's a total cop out. I mean, that's what you signed up for. And I realized that just like with the teacher example, that rubs us a little bit the wrong way because we look and we say, yeah, if Congress was easier to work with, you know, boy, look at what could have got done. Oh oh boy. If, if kids came prepared to learn, look at how much more they could learn. Yeah. Like I, I totally get that. Wouldn't it be nice? As my friend Joe Minicozzi likes to say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I was, uh, look like Brad Pitt, but I don't. So I got to make do. I got to figure this out. I got to work with what I've got. I don't have a choice. I have to work what I got. And lamenting those other things is almost like creating excuses for our failure. It's, I think, an unhealthy way to approach things. Yeah, we've got these obstacles to overcome. How do we do that? How do we do that? I'm going to give one more example. And it actually comes from one of my favorite books, which it was a movie, Moneyball. Let's say that you are a major league GM. And it's interesting because, you know, we can look around. I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan. Some jobs are plum more than others. Some jobs you're like, oh, yeah, I really love that job. Well, l- let me give you an example. Like, I'd really love to be the coach of the Yankees because the Yankees have huge payroll. They have all these stars. They have all this stuff. You know, they can, one player gets injured. They can just go buy like a better player, you know, what, what have you. I'll probably make my New York friends here mad at me, but my gosh, I hate the Yankees. Um, but you know, you'd like to be the Yankees coach because it's easier, right? But the reality is, no, it's not easier. <laughs> it's not easier. And the expectations are bizarre. And they have coaches that, you know, by any other standard do really well, but by the standards of the Yankees don't achieve enough and they get kicked out, right? They get thrown out. You can lament all you want. Like my player got injured you know, you got the wrong like superstar. I wanted this person over here and I wound up with this or my pitching staff, uh, you know, got tired at the wrong time or, or went into a funk in the wrong. Pre- no, you, you don't get to use those excuses. Right. And the book Moneyball laid this out in what I think is the best, the best way you've got the GM of the Oakland A's Billy Bean. And there's this great scene in the movie. There's a, there's a scene that I just love, and I love it for so many reasons. But I'm going to play this scene for you, this little part. Billy Bean is sitting around a table with all the scouts, and the scouts are talking about 
the players that they're going to get because they've lost their their best players. Their best players became free agents. They left the team. The team now has to replace the production of these players. And the reality is, is like, you're not going to find another Jason Giambi. You're not going to find another Johnny Damon. Like, where are these guys going to come from? How are we going to do this? And, and what you hear is the scouts kind of going through the same old lament. We got to find our guys and we got to train them up and we got to work in the game we got, work in the process we've got. And boy, isn't it sad that we don't have the money of the Yankees and isn't it too bad that we're the poor team and, and all this. And I love the way that Billy Bean like frames the conversation because it's very easy to say, yeah, you're right. You're right. We're like the bottom feeding team. We're the worst team and we don't have any payroll and we don't have any money. And so basically we should have no expectations. But listen to this. I think this is just fantastic. This is from the movie Moneyball. Guys are just talking. Talking la 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 like this is business as usual. It's not. We're trying to solve the problem here, Billy. Not like this. You're not, you're not even looking at the problem. We're very aware of the problem. I mean, okay, good. What's the problem? Look, Billy. We all understand what the problem is. We have to okay, replace... Okay, good. What's the problem? The problem is we have to replace three key players in our nope. lineup. What's the problem? Same as it's ever been. We've got to replace these guys with what we have existing. No. Nope. What's the problem, Barry? We need 38 home runs, 120 RBIs, and 47 doubles to replace. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. It's an unfair game. And now we've been gutted. Organ donors for the rich. Boston's taking our kidneys. Yankees taking our heart. And you guys are sitting around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans. Like we're looking for Fabio. We got to think differently. I love that scene. And I love the, you know, we've got to think differently. And really, the thing that's great about this scene, and I'm actually looking right now at my computer screen, the one scout, if you've seen the movie, you know, the one that ultimately gets fired, looking with like this degree of perplexness, he's looking at Billy Bean and he's like, what the, what are you talking about? Like, we know what we're doing. We do this. This is how we do this. Like, this is what I go about doing. This is what I know how to do. What do you mean we got to change how we're doing things? And there's almost a sense that like the world outside is what's screwed up. The world outside is what's wrong. And I just need to do like the things I know how to do. The world outside essentially be damned, right? Like, okay, it's unfair. Like our team is being gutted. You know, our kidneys are being sent to the uh, the Red Sox and our, our livers being sent to the Yankees. Okay, but you know, we got we're scouts and we're just looking at players and here's our budget and our payroll and let's go out and do the best we can. And you got Billy Bean saying, like, no, that that doesn't work, guys. There's rich teams, there's poor teams, there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. And later on in this scene, I, I think it's this scene, but he he says, like, if we think like the Yankees in here, we're gonna lose the Yankees out there. We have to think differently. We have to think differently. Now, I talked about teachers. I talked about presidents. I talked about major league GMs. These are all places where you're dealing with enormous challenges. 
But enormous challenges come with the job. That's part of the job. And you don't get to change the environment outside. The only thing you get to change is inside, like what you do to react to that. The only thing you get to change is what you do to react to the world that's outside that's around you. When we focus on the outside and let that be the excuse, even though it's an unfair game. I mean, Billy Bean says this here and and he's right. It's an unfair game for teachers who are getting kids who are not ready to learn. It is unfair for everybody for presidents who are elected and have to deal with a terrible media and deal with a Congress that won't work with them and deal with these like highly charged political environments. It's an unfair game, right? It was freaking unfair for Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) right? Like it was unfair, but what happened? This comes with the job. This is part of the job and part of doing the job and getting the job done and doing it well, doing it the best is getting beyond the unfair, getting beyond the unfairness. I've had the the pleasure over the last few months of meeting kind of intimately with a number of city staffs. And I've, I've been able to do this for years, but I've, I've been able to do it in a way that I think is even maybe more intense and more intimate over the last few months than I have really in the past. And I've spent a lot of time on the road really since early March, mid, like maybe mid-February. And it's involved a lot of these meetings with, with staff. And it's very interesting because I will ask city staff, where do you struggle with? Where, where are the challenges you have? What are the things that you face? Sometimes I'll even ask them, like, what are the things that you wish people understood about your job and about what you do? And it's really interesting because I get consistently a very similar set of answers. I'll get them to say, like, we wish the public understood how complex and difficult this job is. We just wish that, like, the city council, uh, the voters, uh, people out in the neighborhoods, we, we wish that they understood the terrible challenges we have in making this all work. We, we wish they grasped how limited the resources are. We wish that they really totally understood how little we have to go on and how like with bailing twine and duct tape, we're keeping the city running. Like I wish, I wish they understood that. I wish there was a little bit of appreciation for what we do. And, and I wish the public had a little bit more patience with us. It seems like they want things right now. And like, if you can't deliver it right now, everybody gets mad and everybody goes crazy. And they go to the city council and they yell at them and they, they get us in trouble. I, I mean, I, I just wish that that could be different, right? I wish the public understood that we care. Like we're trying to do a good job. We're here and we want to make a difference. I wish they just cut us some slack. I wish they would have like a long-term view. I, I wish they would see that things are getting better. That, that we are making progress. I, I wish the public understood this. I wish that they grasped this. Let me tell you something. They're never going to. <laughs> They're never going to. Not without some massive change, but just like you wishing it will never make it happen. It's not going to happen. You have to do this job despite that. You have to do this job despite the lack of resources despite the complexity, despite the lack of appreciation and literally like people demanding more from you than what is possible. Like that is, that is part of the job. That's the gig. That's the whole thing. Like if you want to go work for a city government, if you want to be in a policy position, 
where you're making decisions. You want to have some power on how things go and how things are done. You are going to get unfair critiques continuously. You are going to be in the pressure cooker. You are going to be pushed around. You're going to have expectations of you that are unreasonable. You are going to have those things. You're going to have to, that is the job. That's the job. That's the job. It's thankless. You got to do it anyway. You got to perform anyway. Here's the question. How do you do the job despite these things? How do you do it well? Even more like, how do you overcome it? If we go, if we go back to the teachers, this is a, a fair example. I think it is a very fair critique of teachers to say, kids come unprepared to learn. I'm going to focus on one specific aspect of this. A kid who comes to school hungry is going to struggle to learn and retain things. No matter how good of a teacher I am, they're going to struggle in that. Now, my argument is you got to teach them anyway, and you got to overcome that, and you got to get past that. But what a revolutionary change if we could just have like breakfast for kids. And here in my local school district, we provide breakfast for kids. I actually think now, when I was younger, it was the free and reduced lunch. If you qualified, and the qualifications you know, weren't that onerous, if you qualified, uh, you could come in at free breakfast in the morning. I think now, actually, and I could be wrong on this, but I, I don't think so. I think any kid who wants breakfast can show up and have it at school. I think that's a rule today. Like you just show up and you can have breakfast. And the idea is like, we've figured out that if you come to school and are hungry, you're not going to be able to learn real well. And, and we can give you a leg up if we give you a little bit of food, right? But that doesn't change. <laughs> I think teachers giving that feedback to administration, teachers giving that feedback to policy people helps us as a policy standpoint, deal with it. But it doesn't negate like the fact that you got to teach them anyway. You got to teach them anyway. When we look at this list of things that I consistently hear from city staff, like the public doesn't grasp the complexity of what we do. The public doesn't grasp our lack of resources. My question is like, why don't they grasp it? Who is communicating it to them? Who is making it clear in like a coherent way that this is the case? I don't see many cities anywhere communicating this kind of stuff. I don't see city staffs very often saying like, here's the trade-offs of this policy. Here is the cost of, of what we're doing. Here is the impacts of this development choice versus this development choice. I don't see very many places doing that at all. I think that when we sit around and say, like, we wish we had a different public. We wish we had a different city. We wish we had different, like, starting conditions. I think what we do is we actually sell ourselves really short. I think we sell ourselves really short. I think we, we sit around the table and look like this scout, the scowl on our face, like, looking all perplexed. How in the world can you be suggesting that we do something different? We have to think really differently today. And step back for a second and think about this. I think it is very, very easy for us as people who care about cities, whether you're a part of a, a city staff as a professional or whether you work for a city in like an advisory capacity or whether you're just someone who is a strong citizen and involved in your block or your neighborhood or, or want to make things better, we have to have a realization in our position as strong town advocates 
that what we're doing has to overcome the inertia of the current system. We have to overcome the inertia of what now is the status quo. If our plan was to go out and build frontage roads and highway lanes, go out and build apartment buildings and single family homes, what we wanted as Strong Towns advocates was to build strip malls and drive through restaurants. We would not have to push very hard, right? We wouldn't have that scout sitting across the table or that, that resident or constituent or staff member sitting across the table looking at us all perplexed, right? If we want to go in and say, uh, we're going to focus on level of service and the f- quickest way we can move traffic and keep the traffic flowing and get rid of fight congestion, like no one's going to look at us all perplexed. Like, what are you doing? They're just going to say, okay, well, you know, we get this. Like, we'll continue on with this. We totally understand it. What we are charged with doing is something like radically different. And that means, that means that we have to get beyond what, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call excuse making. I feel like I'm getting myself in some trouble here. And and so I'm going to hedge a little bit. When I say excuse making, I'm not suggesting that like teachers are not doing a good job. Like I said, I know a ton of teachers. They're beautiful people. They work very hard. They care deeply about kids. But oftentimes, and way, way, way too often, I think, than what I'm comfortable with, teachers will chalk up. I'm going to use the term shortcomings, and that's really not the one I'm, I'm after. I'm, I'm more looking for, like when students fail to achieve, whatever the, the, the good intelligent word for that would be, when, when students fall short of what you would hope, we're very prone to chalk it up to the things that are out of our control. They weren't here ready to learn. They came hungry. They came unprepared. Nobody, nobody tucks them in at night or reads to them, right? So we're very easy to like dismiss it and write it off that way. I get that. That's like a human reaction. When our favorite president's policies don't get enacted, we're, we're very quick to blame everybody else but the person who had the job. When your baseball team doesn't win and the GM makes some bad moves, but basically doesn't put together a winning team or a competitive team, it's, it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, we, it's an unfair game. We weren't supposed to win. We're underneath the, the 50 feet of crap, right? Like we're there at the bottom. We shouldn't win. I think it's very easy. What I'm saying here today is that if you're going to be a Strong Towns advocate, if you're going to actually worry about the future solvency of your place, if you're actually going to worry about building wealth, if you're going to worry about improving the quality of life for places, you are going to have to become the opposite of an excuse maker. You're going to have to become something other than that. In fact, you're going to have to look at every problem you face that you would otherwise make an excuse for as something you need to obsess about overcoming. That's what you have to do. If you're going to be a Strong Towns advocate, that's what you need to do. There can't be excuses. We, we can't say like, oh, the, the public doesn't understand what we do. Okay. If that is the problem that is holding you back, deal with that problem, solve that problem. And if you can't solve that problem, like if you don't have a way to get past that problem, then you have to find a way to adapt your approach to take that problem into consideration and overcome it. Oh, the public doesn't understand our lack of resources. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they get it. They get, they, they get that. They do. 
You have to be able to do things despite that. You have to be able to advocate for strong towns in light of that. And in fact, I would say, especially like on the resource thing, I feel like that's our greatest advantage, right? As strong towns advocates, we can go in and say, look, we can do this better and cheaper. Like we can get better outcomes at lower price. We can actually improve the city's financial strength by spending less money. Like I feel like if you can't take that and turn that around and make that into a positive, you're not trying very hard. You're not trying very hard at all. I think the challenge that we face is that we're saying it's an unfair game. The inertia is going in a different direction in many ways. The system is stacked to do something very different than what needs to happen. The federal government, all their programs, all their policies, all their grants, all their financing, all all the way we've set up all the systems for building homes, for building neighborhoods, for building roads, for building streets, for financing this, for insuring this, all the standards that we've set up, they're almost all fighting against us. They're almost all fighting against us. When we go to the state level, we see the same thing over and over and over. These obstacles are there to be overcome. They're all against us. They're all against us. When we get to the local level, we've got all this like cultural sets of beliefs and how you achieve growth, how you make success. Let's do the big ribbon cutting. Let's get the big business to move in here. Let's do the big project. Let's get the silver bullet. Let's do the moonshot. It looks like progress. It feels like progress. There's a cultural understanding of what this all is that we have to overcome. We have to overcome. And if we start our conversations with those things as laments, those things as excuses, we're done. We're like, we're done. Give up now. It's not going to happen. Because let me tell you, those things are not going to change. They're not going to change anytime soon. They're not going to change very easily. And when they do, they're going to change because the world has changed around us, not because of like what we've done. We have to do this despite this messed up thing around us. We've got to be successful despite messed up politics, messed up cultural narrative, messed up finances, messed up programs. We, we've got to do it despite that. And I think the challenge that we face is figuring that out, is figuring that out. I've wanted to say this for a while, and I just haven't, I may be too Minnesota nice sometimes when I'm out meeting with places. I, I try to listen. I try to be helpful. I try to give nudging advice and and steer them in a different direction. But I've been hearing this kind of same lament over and over and over. You know, if only the public grasped this. And I'm telling you, you got to get beyond that. You got to get beyond that. And if you can't, then you got to deal with that. You got to communicate that better to the public. You you can't just expect them. They're not going to carry the weight. They're not going to carry the burden. They're not going to do this. They're certainly not going to do it despite you. As Strong Towns Advocates, we have a huge burden. And I'm not suggesting this is easy. I'm not suggesting this is simple. But I'm suggesting this is the path we're on. This is the path you're on if you're listening to this. We have to be able to overcome these things. We have to figure out what that means. Let me give you a very like personal example here. In my hometown, 
And I'll, I'll give you this, not because I think I'm, I'm right or I'm good or I'm doing things perfectly. I, I don't, I don't, but I'm going to tell you a place where I have failed and then, you know, changed as a way to like move beyond, right. And like figure this out. Back in the early days of Strong Towns, I, I was, I was very angry here at what was some of the, and I'm just going to use the word, you know, stupid, idiotic things that I saw my city doing. I thought it was horrible. I was not only deeply appalled, but, but, you know, borderline offended, not borderline offended. I was deeply offended by the policies that we were doing, the, the things that we were, you know, blowing our last dollars on, tying up future generations, this city for decades over things that were just destructive. And I got mad. I got angry. You go read some of the early stuff that I wrote. I was ticked off at these people. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of them have been very angry with me because they thought I was hard on them. I was hard on them. I was hard on them in a Minnesota kind of way. One time I, I wrote an article and the, the title was Stupid Is As Stupid Does. And, you know, throughout the article, I, I talked about what makes a good place to put a bike lane. And I used the local example as a place to put it. And I used a, another local example as like a place not to put one. After that, for a long, long time, I had people say, you know, you called us stupid. <laughs> you put us down by calling us stupid. And they refused to talk to me. You know, like I, I have nothing to do with someone who would call us stupid. I think about that. And in a Minnesota context, that's like a horrible crime what I did. Um, if I went out to New York, that would be like, you know, me being friendly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we have a different way of doing things here. That being said, I have tried really, really hard to be the last person to speak in many settings now, to be the person who like listens more. And I'm sure there's people here listening who are going like, give us a break, Chuck, you're a pain in our neck. I, I am, but I'm not in the way that I, I used to be. I'm not in the way that I used to be. I try really hard to get along with the city staff. I try really hard to see things from their perspective. I try really hard to be respectful to them, as respectful as I can be. I can't change them. Let me paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld here back during the, the second Gulf War. You go to war with the army you have, not the one you wish you had. You can't spend five years outfitting your army. You got to go fight the war today. You go to, to war with the army you have, not the one you wish you had. I, I have the staff that I have, not the one I wish I had. I can be like brutally lamenting that. I mean, I can just be tied up in knots about that. I can just write off every failure as these people are idiots who don't get it and just bang my head against the wall. No, I can't. I don't, I don't have that luxury. If I actually want to make change, I got to step back and say, can I change this staff? No, I can't. Then they are a given. Then I deal with them. Then I work with them. How do I get the most out of that situation? I don't do it by being a royal jerk. I do it by trying to be empathetic, by trying to understand them, by trying to grasp their priorities, by trying to find ways where we can work together when there's overlap. That is really hard for me. It's hard for me because I see, I see things so clearly in my mind. It is so obvious to me 
particularly when we get to like the local things in, in my neighborhood and my community. It's so obvious to me what we should be doing. And when everybody else wants to do something different and thinks what I want to do is bizarre and wrong and like, you know, where are you coming from, Chuck? This is crazy. It's very, very frustrating for me. It's easier for me. It is easier for me to just leave, walk out and say, you know, a curse on all of you, you foolish idiots. I'm done with you then I lose, then everybody loses. We all lose. We've got to deal with the cards we've been dealt. And as Strong Downs advocates, that's not a fair game. It's not a fair game. It's not a fair game. None of this is fair. None of us asked for 75 years of this crazy experiment. None of us asked for this. None of us asked to be put here today with loads of debt, Uh, loads of liabilities, cities that are failing, screwed up infrastructure programs, screwed up public finance. None of us asked for this. None of us got put here by our choice. This is where we are. We got to deal with it. We got to figure it out. I'm going to close this by just urging you, when you hear those things creeping into your meetings, into your conversations, when you hear these laments start to come up, like, oh, if the public just understood us, if they just grasped the complexity of what we're doing, if, if people just understood how like, difficult our finances are, if we just had people appreciate us a little bit more, stop it. Ask yourself a question. Is this lament something I can fix? Am I lamenting something that I can affect and change? And if the answer to that question is no, then stop it. Cut it out. It's an unhealthy habit. Move beyond it. Figure out how to overcome it. Take it as your challenge, as your obstacle to overcome. You don't have another choice. And unless you're willing to accept failure and ascribe failure to something, which in which case, understand what you're doing, it's simply a defense mechanism. And I get it. I understand what it means to be human in that regard. I understand what it means to be human and to want to ascribe the failure to someone else, to something else. And I I get it. I'm not blaming you for the failure. I'm not. But if you want to make change, you got to overcome that. You got to take it as a given. You got to accept it. You got to not lament on it. You got to not allow it to be the excuse that keeps you from doing something positive. This is tough. I'm not talking to you pretending that it isn't tough, that it isn't difficult, but we got to do it. Because if we want to build strong towns, we've got to be the change. We've got to be the people that overcomes. We got to be the people that, that find that answer. When that person's looking at us with that skeptical set of eyes and we say it's an unfair game, but we can't do business as usual, we got to be able to actually walk that walk. We have to be actually able to do that. Mentally get beyond the things that you can't change. And it will open up a whole range of things that you can and that you must if we're going to build strong towns. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. 
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.